Well, good morning. Welcome, especially to those of you who might be new or visiting with us this morning. Uh, my name is Chris, and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here. This is a pretty good-looking group. <laughs> you know, you never know what to expect on a Sunday morning, and especially given the fact that we are in very challenging and rapidly changing times. And uh, really, here I'm touching my face. I will try my best not to. Don't judge me, please. As a side note, I read or I was watching somewhere where they say that men with beards should shave their beards because you're less likely to touch your face. I think the opposite would be true. I, as long as Amanda has known me, I have had facial hair. And so I think that I would be constantly touching my face if I was to shave it. So I will try to do my best to trim it, but I won't touch it as much as I can. But I wanted to begin just by sharing with you guys and assuring you that as the Board of Elders, we are monitoring what's happening with COVID-19 or the coronavirus. Um, we understand that the reality is, is there are no easy answers in this time. Um, we don't want to fear um, we don't want to just kind of follow the masses because someone is doing something. Um, we want to be informed and we want to make wise decisions about how we can best serve our church and our community. Uh, and so we're going to be continuously updating you as, as things unfold. Um, you, if you're part of our email list, um, you would have received an email last night. Or if you're on Facebook and are like our Facebook page, you would have been able to see that we released saying that we are open. Uh, at this time, we're going to continue our services as scheduled. Um, there may come a time where we're no longer allowed to hold our services, where they continue to crack down, and we, will, we are considering what that might look like. Um, but as of right now, we are going to continue to press forward with our services. Um, one of the things that we have determined, I think, as elders to do is that in line with what the school board has done and what many other churches are doing and recommendations from the health board, and, um, is that we will probably, we are going to temporarily suspend our kids club and our youth group meetings um, for two weeks following spring break. So spring break was already canceled. We weren't doing kids club or youth group anyways. And I think for youth group, the following week was canceled because the school canceled the event that was planned. So we're just going to go for an extra two weeks just to be safe. It's an opportunity for us um, to help our healthcare system by removing some, just by practicing social distancing to a certain extent. And uh, so that's what we're, we're trying to do. Um, like I said, we don't want to fear. And in fact, one of the most common phrases or commands in Scripture is this, do not fear, or some variation of it. And so we are determined that we won't operate out of fear. We have a God who is good and a God in whom we can trust. And so I'm reminded of Jesus' words to his disciples in John chapter 14 when he says this. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Those are reassuring words in this time. <clears throat> and then in Philippians 4, Paul writes this. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. 
and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then even looking into the Old Testament, we see Psalm 46. And this is one that has come to me this week that I was reading quite a bit. It says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. And though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in an uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Throughout Scripture, we see passages that lead us into the presence of God. A presence where we do not fear, but we have trust and security. So that no matter what comes, we find peace and we find hope. And so as a church, as a people who belong to Christ Jesus, we do not fear. We rest in the peace that comes from knowing our risen Savior. And so I want to begin this morning just by taking a moment to pray, and I want to pray Psalm 46, 1-7 over us as a congregation and over our communities. And so would you just bow with me in a word of prayer. Father, we come to you and we acknowledge in your word what you say is true. And so God, you are our refuge and our strength. You are an ever-present help in trouble. And therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth will give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters will roar and foam and the mountains will quake, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy place where you, the Most High, dwells. God, you are within her. She will not fall. God, you are her help at break of day. Nations are in uproar and kingdoms fall, but you lift your voice and the earth melts. You, O Lord Almighty, are with us. The God of Jacob, you are our fortress. Amen. This morning we are beginning a a series that is called The Upper Room. Uh, we are continuing, it's, we're, it's based on the Upper Room Discourse. It's real original, I know. Um, we are journeying with Jesus and his disciples. We are, are following their lives as they are recorded in the Gospel of John. And you'll remember that for the last two months or so, we've been looking at uh, the miracles of, or the signs and the wonders that Jesus performed as they are recorded in the Gospel of John And John records all of those signs and wonders so that they would lead us to a place where we would believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And now John has moved away from that public ministry. He's moving away from the the signs and the miracles of Jesus and how he's performing everything in the open and in front of the public. And he directs us into a more private and powerful time of teaching. It's no less or no more powerful than the teaching we witnessed before, but it's a more intimate gathering as Jesus and his disciples meet in the upper room. 
And in the privacy of this upper room, what we find is that there are no interruptions from the Pharisees. Throughout the first 12 chapters of John, or the 11 chapters of John, we see the Pharisees. They are encountering Jesus. They are at, at, there's all this strife, and there's this misunderstanding, and there's this challenge to the things and the words of Jesus. But here in the upper room, it is Jesus and his disciples There's no longer any sick or demon-possessed people to minister to. There's no interruptions. It is simply Jesus and his disciples. And this is going to be a pivotal time for the disciples. As we're going to see shortly in the text, Jesus knows what's coming. He knows that his hour and his time has come. And so really what we see here is that Jesus is preparing his disciples for the mission and the calling for which they are going to be sent out. As they are going to be the the disciples, they are going to be the messengers of Christ to the nations, Jesus wants them to be prepared. He wants them to know how to live. And today, as those who are the the church, those who are what we would call modern-day disciples, it's important for us to take time to lean in just as the disciples would have done, and to learn from the teacher. And so I'm going to pray again as we, just before we dive into our text. So would you bow again in prayer with me? Lord, we know that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, you are in our midst. And Lord, I, I think though, even though you are already in our midst, that you enjoy or you relish when we invite you to be present and to move among us. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to be present with us this morning. I invite you to move in love, to move in mercy and in grace and in your power. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate the Scripture to us? May we hear your words May we bring honor and glory to you, and may we praise the name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me in them to John chapter 13, as we look at the account of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. John chapter 13. It says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. 
Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him and that was why he said not every one was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And this is the word of the Lord. Starting right in verse 1, we see that it's the Passover festival. This is setting the stage for what is about to happen. This is the time when the, the people of Israel would gather together. It was one of the three pilgrimages that they would make yearly to Jerusalem to celebrate. It was a time when they gathered together as families to celebrate and remember how the Lord had brought them out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. This is what they were remembering. They were remembering that time. They would, be, they would tell stories. They would recount the Scriptures. And they would remember how the Lord had brought them out of Egypt. Particularly at the Passover festival, they would have been remembering the 12 plagues. How as they were slaves in Egypt and Moses went to Pharaoh and Pharaoh would refuse to let them go and the Lord sent these plagues upon the people. And the final plague was that it was the death of the firstborn, the tenth plague. And so the people of Israel were commanded to slaughter a lamb and to paint the lamb's blood over their house, the door of their houses. And so during the, the time in the evening when the, the angel of the Lord would come upon them, he would pass through, and as he was going about slaughtering the firstborn, anyone whose house had the blood painted over it would be spared. And so this is, this is where we get the word Passover. The angel would literally pass over the house. And so they were remembering how the Lord had saved them and the Lord had redeemed them. And then over, in that moment, there was an uproar. There was this cry from the people of Egypt. And Pharaoh sent the people out. And they began their journey out of, of, into freedom, away out of the slavery and the bondage of Egypt. And so this is what the people were remembering. This is what they were celebrating, how God had set them free. And so if there was ever an appropriate time for Jesus to die, to be the sacrifice for our sins, to be our sacrificial lamb, then what better opportunity was there for when God's people were already gathered together remembering the things that he had done? And so we know that Jesus was already aware that his death and his resurrection were imminent. He knows that he is about to return to the Father. His hour has come and he knows that he is to die in obedience to his Father's will. This is why Jesus has come. And Jesus' death is an incredible act of love that was for all people. For anyone who would believe, anyone who would call on the name of the Lord. And yet, John tells us that Jesus had this particular love for his own people. These were the people who journeyed with him, who were closest to him. 
He loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and we saw them just last week as they encountered Jesus, as they walked in faith. As Jesus raised Lazarus, the, Lazarus, the one whom he loved, from the dead. And Jesus loved his disciples. Here was a group of men who had journeyed with him during the entire course of his ministry. Men who had walked with him, who had, who had been with him as he performed all of his miracles, all of his signs and his wonders, as he taught the people. And so you could imagine the difficulty that Jesus is facing in this moment. He knows what he has come to do. He knows that he is going to the cross and what he is about to face. And yet at the very same time, he deeply loves his friends. Sometimes it's very difficult for us to step into deep places when, because we know that it means leaving the ones we love behind. And so Jesus, in the, the last few hours that he has with his disciples, he takes time and he gathers them close and he teaches them how to practice the presence of God. How to know the very presence of God and to be in intimate fellowship with him. And we're going to see over the next couple of weeks just how Jesus does this, the promises that he makes, the ways that he invites us to abide in him. But he also takes time to instruct his, to instruct his disciples in how to live. How are you supposed to live when I am gone? They don't know it yet, but he does. And so he's going to demonstrate for them how they are to continue to serve one another as his messengers. And so we see Jesus humbling himself and washing his disciples' feet. And so the question really is, what can we learn from Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet? And we can learn a lot of things. But there's a couple of things I really want to highlight for us this morning. And the first is that we actually learn a deep theological truth. First and foremost, you need to understand that in Christ, we are cleansed. You see, in, in Jerusalem in the time, cleansing rituals were part of everyday life. There was rituals upon rituals, and, and throughout the Scriptures, if you read throughout the Old Testament, you see all of the examples, all of the rules for how the Jews were supposed to live. And there was all of these things that they could or could not do, and, and things that would make them clean or unclean. And if they became unclean, it was then required that they would follow the steps to become clean again. And so you've heard the saying, cleanliness is next to godliness. Anyone heard that before? Kids, your, your parents have probably used you, that to get you to clean your room. My parents did. And while this quote is attributed to John Wesley, uh, in reality, the saying actually stems from the religious belief that if you were righteous and holy, you were clean. And if you were unclean, then you were no longer righteous. You were no longer holy. You were no longer godly. And so you needed to be made clean once again. If you were to look back at the history and the infrastructure in the time, you would realize that when Jesus was walking and when they were, and the disciples lived and journeying, the roads that they had were not paved. They were dusty and they were dirty and people only wore sandals. 
And so while people remained clean, after you had had a, a bath, you had bathed, you had made yourself clean, you had followed the, the rituals of cleansing, anywhere you went meant that your feet became dirty. And so while your body, the rest of you remained clean, your feet having come in contact with the earth needed constant cleaning. And so it became customary in those days that whenever you entered into a person's home, you would wash your feet. And for those who could afford a servant to wash the feet of their guests, there was great honor. And if no servant was found, if you weren't able to afford a servant, then it was the lowest person in the house or in that group that would do the washing. Kids would wash their parents' feet. The lowest and the least among your group would have been the one to wash everyone else's feet. And yet here we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet. The teacher, the Lord. And in verse 8, he declared, he says this, he says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And so essentially what Jesus is saying to Peter and to his disciples is that unless Jesus washes away your sins, you have no real relationship with him. This is the salvation message. As much as we talk about following Jesus and encountering Jesus, until you come to the place where you acknowledge that it is only through his cleansing, it is only through his blood, you are not saved. In 1 John 1.7 it says, the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. In salvation, it is through the atoning death of Jesus that believers are completely cleansed. It is through His blood, through His sacrifice that He was going to, that we are made holy and righteous. And then Peter, and you have to love Peter. I think there's times where I really relate to Peter because he's impulsive. And yet at the same time, we see in his heart that he is so desperate he desperately longs to be with Jesus and to follow him and to serve him. And so Peter says, okay, Jesus, if you're going to wash me, if you're going to cleanse me, wash my hands and my head as well. And the hands were symbolic of the actions we take. And the head is symbolic of the thoughts that we have. And so Peter is really saying to Jesus, just cleanse all of me. Every last part, Jesus. But see, in the cleansing blood of Jesus, we are made completely clean. And so it is in Christ that we find our salvation. And so while we are saved, the reality is, is that we continue to come in contact with a broken and messy world. We don't walk in dusty roads or dusty streets anymore, but in our daily lives, we still encounter the things that contaminate us, that make us once again unholy. And so we continuously need Jesus' cleansing, his forgiveness, this is sanctification as he continues to wash us and make us new. But just because you sin doesn't mean you have to be saved again. No, you just need his continuous washing. And so this is the foundational theological truth that we must learn. Jesus wants us to get this. 
that through faith in Jesus and through the cleansing of his shed blood, we are cleansed and we are made holy. And it is only through this cleansing that we can truly have a relationship with Jesus. Do you know the cleansing power of Jesus? He loves you and he has died for you. And so while Jesus teaches us this and his disciples this powerful truth, he doesn't stop there. It doesn't end at, I have come and I have washed you and now that's the end. No, he continues on and he actually begins to model for his disciples a new way to live. And so the second thing that we can learn from Jesus as the washing of the disciples' feet is that in Jesus we have an example. He is our example in how to live. And so as I was reading through this passage, as I've been studying this week, there was two ways in particular that I see Jesus modeling for his disciples how to live that jumped out at me. And the first one is this, is that Jesus models humility and service. As he's teaching his disciples how they are supposed to live, he begins to do the work of a servant, of the one who is the lowest of the low. And so he humbles himself before his disciples. And what immediately comes to mind when I see Jesus getting down and lovingly serving his disciples is what we see in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, it says this. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He had come to serve, to serve willingly. And he is asking his disciples to do the same. Humble yourselves and serve one another. In verse 15, Jesus says this. He says, I've set an example for you that you should do as I have done. This is pretty clear for us, is it not? I've done it. I've modeled it for you. Now my expectation is that you would do it for one another. If our teacher and our Lord could stoop to wash their feet, then we should have no hesitation to stoop and wash and serve one another. As I was thinking about this, I, the coronavirus and all of the things that are going on, I thought, what a perfect opportunity for us to actually live this. For us to actually demonstrate a willingness to come and serve one another. In the midst of fear and panic of this pandemic, we have the opportunity to serve our families, we have the opportunity to serve our friends and our neighbors and even strangers. Perhaps it's paying for a stranger's haircut or maybe it's sharing toilet paper with a neighbor. Maybe it's looking after your friend's kids so that, because they have to go to work and you don't have to. But the question I have for you is this, is how could you personally serve those who are around you? How could you become like Jesus and humble yourself? 
And maybe you need to take some time to consider those things. But I would encourage you, this is what Jesus has called us to do. He says there is blessing in serving one another. There is blessing in humbling ourselves. So how can you become like Jesus and serve others? The second way that I see Jesus setting an example for his disciples in how to live is this, is that Jesus models vulnerability. As I was reading through this account, this is one of the things that Jesus models that really stood out for me. It's not just that he, hum- he, he models humility and service. It's not just that he gets down and, and serves them. It's the way in which he serves them. In verses 4 and 5 of John chapter 13, it says this. He says, So he, Jesus, got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into the basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He's taking off his robe and he is getting down to his undergarments. He is becoming vulnerable before his disciples' Now, how could I possibly preach a sermon on Jesus washing the disciples' feet and not actually do a foot washing? And so, I would love to be able to wash everybody's feet. But given the circumstances and and the time we find ourselves in, I'm not going to do that. That would probably be unsanitary. But I, I want to serve us as a congregation. And so, Rudy... You're in the front, so you're getting picked on. You're also an elder, and so you represent the church. I'm going to invite you to come up. And as an act of service, you are going to represent the church, our church. I'm going to wash your feet. And so this is what I see Jesus doing. He he takes his robe... And he undresses, not fully. He doesn't get naked. No, you've got to take your shoes off and your socks and roll up your feet. Your feet, your, your pants. You guys. I know, because nobody wants to have their feet washed. Consider this, and this is something I have wrestled with. This is where I think Peter wrestled. It's uncomfortable having somebody serve us. There is humility and there's vulnerability in being able to be served as well. So not only is there humility and service in serving one another, there is vulnerability and there's humility in allowing others to come and bless us at the same time. And so, Jesus, I can't wrap a towel around my waist, but Rudy, I'm going to invite you to put your feet in the basin. And Jesus takes the water. I hope it's kind of warm for you. And he begins to wash his disciples' feet. And he washes them clean. He takes all of the dirt and he removes it from them. He cleanses them. And then he takes a towel and he dries their feet. 
Is this uncomfortable? Uh, yeah. Yeah? <laughs> it is. We don't like it. And especially if you have an aversion to feet, how much more so? All right. We won't make it go on too long for you, Rudy. <laughs> but thank you. There is vulnerability in Jesus getting down as he takes off his robe. And so as I, as I look at Jesus, as I watch him becoming vulnerable, what it suggests to me is that in order for us to be humble, for, for us to be in a place of humility and service, it requires us to be vulnerable before one another. And being vulnerable includes acknowledging that there is the potential for those you serve to hurt you. And here's what I mean, and here's what kind of stood out for me as I watched Jesus, as I was reading the account, and as I pictured Jesus serving, washing each disciple's feet. And he's going along, and he's doing each and every single one of them. And he gets to the feet of Judas. And Judas was there in the midst, and Jesus washes the feet of Judas. And in John chapter 13, verse 11, it tells us that Jesus already knew that Judas was going to betray him. Judas was one of the twelve disciples in whom Jesus loved, who had journeyed with them. He saw the miracles that Jesus performed. He was there as Jesus taught to both the crowds and as he brought the disciples around him in close in those private times. And so outwardly, Judas looked like one of Jesus' followers. He acted like them, he served with them, he talked like them. And yet he didn't respond in faith. Judas remained in unbelief to the point where he would betray Jesus. And so Judas represents everyone to whom Jesus offers forgiveness and life, and yet who refuses to respond with faith. Jesus still chooses to serve them. He serves Judas knowing that Judas would one day, or even that moment, betray him. And so when we consider Jesus as our, our example, I wonder this. Could you serve someone knowing that there was a chance that they would betray you? Knowing that there's a chance that they might reject you or hurt you? Are there Judases in your life that you have been hesitant or perhaps you have just outright refused to serve? Or are there people who have already betrayed you and hurt you? And you say, I can't serve them. I will not humble myself to them. And yet Jesus does not hesitate to serve Judas. And he calls us to follow in his steps. Jesus has invited us into the deeper presence of God. And he is inviting us into a fuller practice of knowing and serving him. And so first and foremost, it's knowing that the truth about God that through Jesus we are washed and we are made clean. 
This is foundational. This is where it begins. Jesus is who He says He is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And when we come to Him, He will cleanse us and make us new. And then once we have been washed and cleansed, Jesus demonstrates how we should live. In humility and service to one another and with vulnerability towards each other. And so Jesus has called us to follow His example. He has called us to be like Him. And so may we be more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I come to You this morning and I acknowledge that I have not always been like Jesus. I have not always lived in following the example that He has set. But Lord, the reality and the truth of the matter is that You love us so much that You would die for us. That through Your shed blood that we would be cleansed and made holy and righteous once more. And as those who have been cleansed, as those who have been made righteous in Your sight, we are called to lovingly and willingly serve one another. And so Jesus, would You transform our hearts and our minds through Your washing and through Your cleansing that we might willingly serve one another and proclaim You and the works that You have done. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.